Hello and welcome to this episode of Sports Weekly India. I'm your host Aditya Kubeer and I'm joined as usual by RK and Ayaz Memon. As always it's been an eventful weekend weekend of sporting action. We'll be going deep into all of that from India's win over South Africa to England winning in Pakistan and of course we'll have the football and F1 roundup with Somil Arora. A quick reminder to all our listeners to subscribe to the show on Binge Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Jio Seven, Amazon Prime Music or wherever you get your podcasts. It's free everywhere. We start this episode with some unfortunate news coming out from Indonesia. It's always sad when sports is overshadowed by off-field activities. The unfortunate death of 125 people has definitely come as a shock to all football fans and especially in a World Cup year. But this isn't really the first such incident in Indonesia or around the world for that matter. RK, violence, sports, policing, it's always had its set of problems. Uh, how do you see this Indonesia problem? Unfortunate, uh, yes, but as you rightly said, it's been a part of not just Indonesia, but it's been a factor in f- quite a few nations. And I think when you look at such tragedies, you're looking at it from uh, two or three perspectives. One is from the fans' perspective. Sometimes they do go overboard. The rivalry does go overboard. That's point number one. Secondly, from the policing standpoint, was tear gas necessary? Was it within the rules to fire tear gas at a set of supporters? And thirdly, in terms of ticketing and stadium infrastructure, these are the three aspects around which I think I would want to look at this issue. Look, everybody for their part are going to justify themselves. For example, the police have gone ahead and said we had to use tear gas because a couple of our men were killed in everything that ensued around that particular game. So we were justified in using what we did. The fans are going to say that look, it is all about celebration or it is all about revenge or whatever it is. So it's been a case not just with Indonesia, not just when a side loses, but also in situations where teams have won. My mind goes back to the final day of the Premier League last season when Everton ensured that they were in the top flight. That was a game against Crystal Palace. Now, the minute the game got over, luckily there were no casualties. But the reason why I'm bringing this point up is because the minute the game got over, the Evertonians were so euphoric about everything that transpired. They did all right against Crystal Palace that they all stormed the ground. Patrick Vieira who was the coach or the manager of Crystal Palace had to go from one end to the other and you actually had fans banging into him now it was unhurt definitely it could be called an accident but it was unhurt but when you looked at those scenes i think even some of the members in the premier league raised the question about policing there how is it that you're allowing that to happen in the first place for the fans to get down even if it be celebration it's a serious safety issue The Champions League I think uh, very recently we saw there was a ticketing issue in Paris there was a huge investigation that went around so it is an unfortunate incident but we are seeing too many of these whether it is in terms of a defeat or it is when fans go overboard with respect to celebrations as well well close at home we actually just saw this in the ticketing aspect in hyderabad for india australia game you know it's not something that's unknown and you can't always actually even blame the police it's just about fans showing a little bit of responsibility and respect and just being you know generally careful ayas as fans how do we react to an incident like this it's really sad everyone's there to have a good time and at what point does it become important for fans to draw the line at the end it's just a game yes the home team lost here so what does it really warrant pitch invasion 
and attacking players. And there are reports that players from both sides were attacked with projectiles and water bottles. And that prompted police action. Well, I mean, this shows you the environment, how steep it was in potential problem. I mean, yes, hostilities do exist in sport. It would be naive to believe that emotions don't run high, especially when there is a favorite team which is playing and there's a home crowd which has come in massive numbers. How to discipline crowds, how to educate them, how to mentor them is, is one of the great challenges of sport, and especially of mass sports like football, increasingly cricket as we've seen in our uh, part of the world. Uh, it's not so much in, say, golf, not even in tennis. You could say that it's a huge problem where the numbers involved become big. If instead of 38,000, you've got 42 or 44,000 people coming in, there is always a potential, there is a risk of some problems or something spinning out of control, which is what seems to have happened here. I think basically it's a management issue. I mean, I'm just trying to break it down into brass tacks. How do you manage an event successfully without leaving so many gaps open that something could, God forbid, something goes wrong, then it goes terribly wrong. So one of the things, for example, if your capacity is 38,000, then, you know, prudence would demand you sell 37,999 tickets, not even 38,000, but not certainly not 42 or 45, because that is asking for trouble in case emotions run high. Then it's about how do you lie with the cops and, you know, what kind of arrangements do you make? A lot of the, when such a thing happens, in hindsight, everybody, you know, the blame game keep emerges. You know, somebody's blaming the cops, some cops are blaming the fans. The fans are blaming the the stadium management and so on. I just think that there have been so many instances in the in the last 50, 60 years that it seems ridiculous that it can't be tackled better. So I'm not saying that we can be incident-free because ultimately we are do, dealing with human nature and human foibles. But we can certainly expect managements, league owners, team owners, etc. And certainly the fans who enjoy the spectacle, who profit from the spectacle, profit either materially or otherwise in terms of satisfaction, they don't do enough to ensure that there is no tragic underside to it. And that's really the problem. Well, it all comes down to human greed and uh, the inability to just manage your own emotions. Well, our thoughts and prayers with those 125 victims and their families who have suffered very, very dearly in Indonesia. Moving on to cricket, in its preparation for the World T20, India has yet another feather to its cap. We've just beaten South Africa 2-0. There's still a game left to play. But after the win over Australia, this one seems a little more convincing. Well, what do you think are the major positives out of this series, RK? KL Rahul, Akshar Patel, anyone else? Surya Kumar Yadav has been perennially a positive for Team India. I think if we are talking about the brand of cricket that Rohit Sharma and his men want to play, the vital cog in that wheel has got to be Surya Kumar Yadav because I remember distinctly a partnership that he stitched with Virat Kohli even during the Asia Cup where he was the aggressor, his strike rate was incredible and I think even um, a second T20 international against South Africa in Guwahati, yes, you had KL Rahul batting with a great deal of intent which he was probably lacking in the first game understandably because of the low target that he was chasing and he was trying to find his form. But again, it was Surya Kumar Yadav who did the job. I think overall, this year has been phenomenal for him. If you look at the biggest positive for Indian cricket in T20s, it's got to be Surya Kumar Yadav. He's the fastest to 1,000 runs in T20 internationals in terms of the number of balls that uh, somebody has taken. 573 balls, which means his strike rate is close to 175. That is uh, ridiculous levels of consistency that we are talking about in T20 cricket. Even on 
nights or days when the others are struggling to put back to ball this man comes in and smashes it all over it's almost as if it's a lesson in geometry every angle is pretty much covered on a cricketing field so yes in terms of positives batting overall from the series is a big positive even from the last series they've been consistently scoring good numbers putting runs on board and even chasing down big targets if you want me to narrow it down i think the biggest 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 plus in the entire year is surya kumar yadav's intent and the way he has gone about his business i asked do you think uh, sky is now the main batting stay and the team is actually batting around him or uh, do virat and rohit still continue to be the alphas of the batting order no i think we have to look at it in combination as a combo the top 4 and then of course you got the finishers you got hardik pandya you don't have jadeja but you've got dinesh karthik and pant if he plays as a batsman or the other way around if dinesh karthik plays as a batsman so i think surya kumar yadav and uh, just to reiterate what uh, rk said he's in a purple patch he can't put a foot wrong in fact he's doing everything so right that bowlers across the world who are preparing for the world cup will be doing overtime trying to just check where they can stop him because the runs seem to come from every corner of the ground a stroke for every angle which is open to exploit so that's the great part about surya kumar yadav and i think it stems from a lot of self confidence and intrepidity you take those risks because you are confident and also you have that range and repertoire of strokes you know otherwise you can be like a square peg in a round hole not knowing what you are doing so i think what he's doing is he's obviously practicing a lot it also has to do with imagination or what they call you know visualization he is obviously doing a lot of that when he enters the ground or before he enters the ground but also critical is the form of rohit sharma kl rahul and virat kohli i mean just as an example if in australia you are 20 for 3 with these three gone then surya kumar yadav may of course try and play the way he is doing now but there'll be a lot more onus on him and his you know risk taking capacity might have to be necessarily reduced to support the team's cause in that sense so i think that the batting top order has to really work well while the batting seems to have found its mark we have been chasing down and scoring big totals but the fact that in the second t20 south africa came to within 20 odd runs of india's massive 237 points to a problem in the bowling and i think harshal patel remains the weakest link so far yeah i think harshal patel is uh, you know not been impressive let's put it that way he was your t20 specialist so was bumrah of course but bumrah was a spearhead and an acknowledged match winner losing him would be a massive massive blow but also equally if bhuvneshwar is vulnerable towards the, in the death over certainly and if harshal patel is also having problems of rhythm or you know not getting the length or line right then india have a serious problem because who do you go to you go to even arshdeep singh who's very promising but he's a rookie and you can't trust the onus entirely on him to do what others more seasoned more seasoned and more senior players are not doing so right now as it as we see and as we as we've seen against australia and against south africa actually your main wicket taking bowler has obviously been akshar patel yeah these are in indian conditions how much can you rely on him in uh, in australia remains to be seen but you need at least a couple of the pacers to come good you know and there is a one slot open still we don't know whether it'll be siraj or shami or whoever else goes in case if bumrah doesn't go so it's a fairly vulnerable situation when the bowling attack is concerned and speaking of bumrah rk he's now joined the ranks of the injured it's still unclear how bad it is or how lo- how much longer he'll be out of action there's about 3 days left for the team to depart what do you make of that situation well to be honest i mean as rahul rabid said realistically he is not ruled out i mean we've love to take his word on it 
But I guess when you're talking about a back issue, which he's had in the past, it can range from just being a stress reaction to a stress fracture. Stress reaction for the benefit of people who are listening in is essentially the inflammation around the bone, which is due to get affected rather if you keep playing. And the more you bowl with a stress reaction, it can eventually lead you to stress fracture, which is a small crack in the bone. Now, from whatever little that I've heard or read or spoken to with experts, I understand that if it is just a stress reaction, you're still looking at a four week period of rest slash rehab because you don't want to injure it further. And if it is stress fracture per se, it is effectively, you're talking about four to six months of recovery. So in any case, assuming that even if it is a stress reaction, then you're not looking at Jaspreet Bumrah till about the 30th of this month because the news came out just a while earlier. So which is one month from where we are as in when the news came out around that 30th of the last month, you're effectively looking at him being fit to actually bowl in a game, say about the 30th of October. So which is still one month. And that is why, look, while we understand that we cannot jump the gun and say his back is gone, understandably so, because there's no formal communication, official communication, yes. But the back injury, it's a recurring back issue. He's had this issue in September 2019 after the one-day International World Cup. He missed or he was out of action for a few months, came back end of Jan or February, if I'm not wrong. So it's been a recurring issue. So even if it is a basic stress reaction, it's going to take a while for him to come back. So that is where I'm beginning to get worried. Well, so some good, some not so good news for India over the last week. The team leaves for Australia on the 6th of October, just a couple of days literally left as we record this. Uh, Let's hope that Bumrah is on that plane and is able to play sooner. Moving on to more T20 action from around the world, England has uh, beaten Pakistan. It was a series they trailed three games to two. And uh, the performances of the last two matches have been especially good. And uh, the last win, the last match, in fact, was a very big 60-plus run victory for England. Would you consider them among the favourites for the title, RK? Yeah, you look, England will have to be one of the big guys, actually, in in terms of the way they revolutionized the one-day international form to begin with under Brendan McCullum. And, of course, the way they have gone about doing the job in T20 cricket in the recent past, I think it's a huge plus. But also is the depth that England seemingly has in its batting department. I think you have the likes of Phil Salt. You have the likes of Ben Duckett, who did exceptionally well, especially against spin bowling in the middle overs. So these are the guys that have done the job for them. I mean, I don't think he is really in the squad, but he could be the first one to be called in if there is an issue to the batter. And I think going away from your country, doing well, in another country just before the World Cup obviously gives you a tremendous amount of confidence. Would want to see Josh Butler when he comes back uh, because he hasn't played a major part at all in this particular series. Would want to see how he gets along once he gets back. And I think the pitches in Australia should suit uh, the English cricket team. And therefore, you can simply not count the English team out because we are talking about a brand of cricket that India follows. Well, to be fair, I think uh, through their one-day international shift in policy, that was a brand of cricket that uh, one uh, England actually started off that other teams are uh, adapting at this point in time. Absolutely. I guess, is Pakistan missing something? I mean, Babar Azam, a couple of their uh, bowlers seem to be well settled. <laughs> one line answer. Is that is that the only missing link? No, I, I, I think they're missing, you know, a batsman in the, in the middle order. 
of consistent run getting quality. You know, somebody will deliver runs all the time. They they are very top heavy. I mean, Rizwan and Babar Azam are obviously the leading batsmen, and that's how it is. Every team wants those two batsmen or the top order batsmen to click. Shan Masood had a half century in the last match, but between three, four, five, six, there has been a bit of a problem for them to get into a settled pattern. So Babar and Rizwan, uh, I think, have set scotched all speculation whether they will form a pair or not in the World Cup because they've just been so good. Rizwan in fact better than Babar in terms of number of runs scored. But they are having problems I think in 3, 4, 5, 6 maybe even 7. Somebody like an Asif Ali who is renowned to be a 6-hitter strong finisher. He's all of that but he's not consistent. So you know that's where Pakistan I think are going to be facing a problem and like I think to an extent India had or has still a slightly extended tail. So they need to make sure that the top 6, 7 or up to eight, give enough runs for these bowlers to to be effective. I think that's where the, the issue is. Just to mention about England, the, the England series was revetting. England versus Pakistan, going three all, and then the decider the decider turned out to be tepid because the margin of victory for England was very big. But it was a great series to watch and follow, especially so close to the World Cup. And I take Arke's point of view. When you go overseas and win, it just gives you such a shot in the arm. And remember, England were without Josh Butler and Ben Stokes. So, this is a team that you, you know, you will underestimate at your own peril. Well, let's hope that these teams are all at top form in the next uh, three weeks. Because uh, anyways, watching cricket coming out of Australia is always fun. And when teams really compete hard, it's even more fun. (laughs) Moving on to other sports, we've got Somil Arora with a quick wrap of all the football action. RK, I really don't want to rub it in, but I have to bring you in here. What do you make of Erling Haaland and what he did yesterday? And for those of you who can't see RK, he's literally just holding his head right now, looking around. Why am I here? Hello, hello. Can't hear you. Can't hear you. <laughs> yeah, neither can Eric Ten Hag. Uh, look, I mean, you knew it was always going to be a difficult game for Manchester United. I'm sure even the most ardent Manchester United fans would agree to that point of view. But to be fair, I didn't think it'll go down that bad. For United to concede six goals, you've got to give it to uh, not just Haaland for the way Foden played, for the way the entire Manchester City team operates. It's just they are playing at a different level. Let's be honest about it. And I think United, for all the euphoria that you had after that loss against Brentford, you had, I think, four consecutive wins in the Premier League. Then there was uh, the international break and they have come back and they've started against Man City. A loss was not completely unexpected. Let me be very, very honest. But the margin of defeat was huge. That probably tells you the distance that United needs to cover to catch up with City. And Haaland is unbelievable uh, in, a, in a completely different planet. I know it's early days, but the goals that he has scored, the number of goals, and the way he goes about scoring those goals is just mind-blowing, to be honest. I mean, just well done to Haaland. Force of nature is what he's being called by a lot of commentators. Uh, it's incredible. Look, I mean, I'm just willing to stick my neck out and say over the last so many years we've had Messi and uh, Ronaldo being the Ballon d'Ors who knows it could be I mean invariably it's been a striker a goal scorer that invariably gets those awards who knows in this kind of form he can uh, very well end up being the next big thing if he's not already it's just insane stuff I know the world keeps talking about Mbappe he's great he's got the pace he's got everything but this man at the end of the day he puts the ball at the back of the net with uh, boring regularity Twelve goals in eight Premier League appearances. With more such info, here is Somil Arora. 
Thank you so much, folks. And this weekend in the world of football, I suppose we just have to talk about the two main fixtures that absolutely define the weekend. The two derbies that got everyone in the world hooked onto their nerves and essentially produced results that weren't surprising, but the way in which they happened probably shocked a few people. Firstly, let's talk about the North London derby between Arsenal and Tottenham Hotspur. 3-1 to Arsenal. And yes, this means that now they are maintaining their lead at the top of the Premier League. And this could have been a big chance for Tottenham Hotspur to actually go up and trump Arsenal and maybe get to 20 points, share the lead with Manchester City. But that didn't quite happen because of a multitude of reasons. Firstly, they just didn't look sharp enough in the entire match. Players like Gabriel Martinelli, Granit Xhaka, and for that matter, even Thomas Partey were actually carving apart Tottenham Hotspur's midfield. And whenever Tottenham got the chance, they were barely, barely there with the X-factor to get it done. Like we saw Perisic miss a couple of chances. And the one occasion where they were sharp enough, it was Richarlison who got a penalty in the penalty box. And eventually, Harry Kane converted to score his 14th goal in 18 North London derbies. That is better than anyone else in history, even Thierry Henry for that matter. So he got that one goal and equalised. But that only came after Thomas Partey scored a screamer of a first goal, a big long-range shot. And then after that, we just saw Spurs crumble in the second half. They made a silly error through Hugo Lloris, through which uh, Gabriel Jesus was able to capitalise at the very, very end. And then Granit Xhaka was involved in a brilliant link-up play with Gabriel Martinelli to see Arsenal go for their third goal. And in the middle of all of this, we saw the biggest moment that essentially represented how frustrated Tottenham Hotspur were throughout this match. We saw Emerson Royale just go up with a terrible tackle on Martinelli. Just absolutely unnecessary. It had no outcome really because that, that particular play could have been blocked off. It was just frustration boiling up. And at the end of the day, it was Arsenal 3, Tottenham Hotspur 1 in a match that they completely had control over all the way through. And that means that yes, they are atop the Premier League by one point over Manchester City who absolutely ransacked Man United. I have no other way of putting it. Yes, the scoreline was, get, wait for it, 6-3. Yes, 6-3. But in the first half, it was 4-0. And it could have been so much worse. And you might be asking, well, Sommel, who scored the six goals in this case? It was two hat-tricks for Man City. Of course, I'm going to let you guess the first player. It's no surprise. It has to be Erling Holland. He got three goals. Of course he would. He's just scoring for fun right now. And the second player who got his hat-trick was Phil Foden. And essentially, Foden, Holland and Kevin De Bruyne were the three players that absolutely tore apart Man United's non-existent midfield, really, because they were able to get ahead of all the all the midfielders and find spaces that nobody else otherwise would. And they were able to confuse the defensive line about their runs and they were able to drop back in times where the defenders thought that they would go ahead. And that essentially gave them so much of space. And then I just have to talk about Erling Haaland for a second because the, the second goal that he scored, the, the long-range pass that he got from Kevin De Bruyne and the way he extended his body and to tap the ball away from his left foot to just push it into the goal, that is the kind of stuff that every striker wishes to do. And they just tore Man United apart. And the scoreline might say that United had three goals. A brilliant one from Anthony, by the way, in the second half. But there's, there's nothing about it. Those three goals happened when Manchester City switched off from the game. When they knew that there was nothing quite in it to defend. So, they let United have a couple of goals at the end. With Anthony Martial scoring on his return, by the way, scoring two goals. Firstly, a header and then a late, late penalty that was just 
there for the sake of Australia. Nothing really happened. And so City tore United apart once again. Holland scoring goals for fun. He's got 14 goals already and Manchester City have barely only played eight matches. So let that sink in. But they're second in the table, one point behind Arsenal. Spurs are third with 17 points. They are three behind City and four behind Arsenal. Brighton still remain fourth with 14 points. And Chelsea are fifth, United sixth, Newcastle seventh. Fulham 8th and after a dismal weekend once again where they were held out 3-3 by Brighton, Liverpool are down with only 10 points. Well, 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 let's wait and see how this plays out in the Premier League. Well, thanks, Somil. And uh, what do you have to give us from the world of Formula 1? That was uh, quite another race in Singapore. Wet, not wet, slippery, not slippery. Alonso just lost power in the middle of it. How's the F1 season shaping up? The Singapore GP was just confusing, really. I mean, the record books might tell you that Max Verstappen started 8th, finished 7th, nothing really happened over there. Charles Leclerc started 2nd, uh, started 1st, my apologies, finished 2nd. Yeah, alright, might have lost a position or two. But if you actually look at the race, this was probably the most chaotic Formula 1 race of the entire season but not entertaining in a way because the momentum was always held up by something or the other. Firstly, we got a one-hour blockage at the start. We got a delay because of the rain coming in. Then we saw so many safety cars, so many virtual safety cars. I mean, let me tell you how many people retired from this one. We had a total of six cars not finish the race and then two cars finish a couple of laps behind. It is incredible how stop-start this race was and how little actually happened in the entire two hours that we actually got to race. And the race was actually cut short by the time rather than by the checkered flag. So really, we had won this one. But at the end of the day, Sergio Perez, in spite of a post-race penalty, held on to win against Charles Leclerc in a spirited drive where he just took the race lead from the very first lap in wet conditions and never, ever let it go. He was incredible, extremely smooth. But you might be wondering, why is it Perez up in P1 and not Max Verstappen? Well, what happened was that in qualifying, Verstappen actually had too little fuel to complete his qualifying lap, which meant that he actually ended up finishing only in P8. They need a litre of fuel to actually give a fuel sample and Verstappen didn't have enough. So he had to abort his qualifying lap to maintain that one litre buffer. And so he started it and had just the most terrible race. He made... A couple of errors here and there, a few issues with strategies too, never really got the momentum going, fell back down way back and then came back up at the end to pass a couple of drivers. It was just really stop-start for him. And even Lewis Hamilton, who could have been third, but made a rare error to actually capitulate from there to go around to finish P9. So, in the driver standings, Max Verstappen still will end up winning the race and the World Championship in Japan. Actually, did I say end up winning the race? It's it's still pretty likely. I mean, considering the kind of run of form he's in and the kind of pace that he's got, I think he still might end up winning that race. But no spoilers. Let's actually wait and see. But the championship may be sealed in Singapore, in Japan very well, because now the points buffer. It's not better than last weekend, but the probabilities are still very much in favor of Max. To finish it off at Honda's home race, in Japan. What a moment that'll be for them after a couple of great years in Formula 1, after all that baggage and the pressure that they had previously. So, heading into Japan, the championship standing still very much in Verstappen's favour, but Sergio Perez is doing a great job to his challenge for P2 in the Drivers' World Championship. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for that, Somil. And with that, it's a wrap here on this episode of Sports Weekly India. We'll be back next week with all of the action from the India versus South Africa series and a few more sporting activities happening around the world. Until then, goodbye. Take care. Thank you. Cheers. Hey.